Welcome to Pediagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're pediatric residents at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into the case. A 10-year-old boy, previously healthy, presents to your office with two months of fatigue and weight loss. You find that he also has increased thirst and urination. Vital signs are within normal limits. Exam is unremarkable, and he's otherwise well-appearing. You check the blood glucose, and it's 350. So you send him to the emergency department for further management. Okay, so we've talked about how to manage DKA in a separate episode, which you should all listen to. But how do we take care of our diabetes patients once they're no longer in DKA? Yeah, it's tricky because sometimes you don't know whether they're type 1 versus type 2 diabetes when they first present. Long-term management of these diseases is slightly different. Add to that the fact that as our childhood obesity rates increase, there's some growing evidence that it may be more of a spectrum where many of our patients are presenting with a mixed picture of a bit of both. So how do you even know a patient has diabetes if they didn't come in in DKA? Like, what's the diagnostic criteria? To diagnose diabetes, you have to have a hemoglobin A1c greater than 6.5%, fasting glucose greater than 126, two-hour glucose tolerance level greater than 200, or random glucose greater than 200 with signs and symptoms of hyperglycemia, so polydipsia and polyuria. You need to have at least two of the lab criteria elevated or one of the criteria elevated twice to confirm the diagnosis. Okay, but then how can we clinically differentiate between type 1 versus type 2 diabetes? Type 1 diabetes is due to a deficiency of insulin secretion, and type 2 diabetes is due to resistance to insulin and inadequate compensatory insulin secretory response. They both present with polyuria, polydipsia, and elevated hemoglobin A1c. Yeah, there's some very general considerations that may hint to which type of um, diabetes they're more likely to be. So type 2 diabetes tends to be older, i.e. after puberty, and they're more associated with the signs and symptoms of metabolic syndrome, such as obesity, acanthosis, nigricans, hypertension, dyslipidemia. Family history tends to be stronger in type 2 than in type 1. The only slight variant to consider as an exception to this is MODI, which stands for Maturity Onset Diabetes of the Young. This is an autosomal dominant defect in insulin secretion. Symptoms can be milder than pure type 1 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes also tends to be more common in children of color such as Native Americans, Hispanics, and African Americans. We should also remember that although type 1 and type 2 diabetes are the most common causes of diabetes in children, there's other conditions and medications that can cause hyperglycemia as well. If they meet the criteria for diabetes, then it's still called diabetes even if it's secondary to other causes. Pancreatic insufficiency from cystic fibrosis and pancreatitis is a common medical cause for secondary diabetes. Steroids are the most common medication to cause secondary diabetes, but tacrolimus, cyclosporine, and asparaginase can also cause it. So which is worse, type 1 or type 2 diabetes? Yeah, it's hard to say because we still don't really have a lot of long-term adult data. Remember that type 1 diabetes is a disease of relative insulin deficiency, whereas type 2 is a disease of insulin resistance. Bottom line is that your body cells are not getting the glucose that they need, and the downstream effects of long-term inflammation from hyperglycemia are the same. So both are at increased risk for nephropathy, retinopathy, neuropathy, and atherosclerosis. However, if you manage both appropriately, those risks decrease significantly. So let's hear from Dr. Caroline Schulmeister, one of our pediatric endocrinologists at UC Davis, on the outcomes for type 1 versus type 2 diabetes. 
So this is actually a really challenging question to answer,、uh, mainly because it's really a moving target. The demographics of diabetes in children have changed a lot, and we know that the incidence is increasing. Um, and so, and then also, we know that technology is changing.、Um, so, while there might be some studies about type one outcomes previously, a lot of those patients who you know were adults when those studies were done didn't have you know the exposure to pumps and CGMs and closed loop systems that we now have. So, we know that you know if someone has high blood sugars for a long time, they are at risk for complications, but we don't know. How this new technology could potentially prevent that?、Um, what we do know,、um, and what's coming out、uh, more recently, is that there's a lot more kids with type two diabetes,、um, and studies that have、um, looked at this population have shown that they progress to worse outcomes a little bit faster than adult counterparts. Um, and so, there's actually a lot of research、um, in this area to try to figure this out because medications don't always work as well for this population, and it's just particularly important to try to get kids'、um, blood sugars within range when they have type two diabetes to prevent this quick progression.、Um, that being said.、Um, What we often do is screen for、um, potential complications in type two right at diagnosis because we know that they are potentially at risk for having these complications even at diagnosis. Whereas in type one, we usually wait at least a few years before we start、um, testing for complications unless they, you know, show signs of potentially having them before. So, how do we manage diabetes initially when we don't know for sure what type it is? We often see kids come in presenting in DKA, and it's unclear what type of diabetes they have. I know you can do antibody testing, but that often takes weeks to result. These antibodies include GAD or glutamic acid decarboxylase autoantibodies, IA2, which stands for tyrosine phosphatase-like insulinoma antigen 2, IAA, which stands for insulin autoantibodies. And ZNT8, which stands for beta cell specific zinc transporter 8 autoantibodies. The initial management of diabetes is actually the same no matter what type they end up having. So once the diagnosis is clear, or once the antibody tests have come back, then you can consider transitioning to other medications for type 2 diabetes, such as metformin. We'll talk about initial management a little bit later in the episode. Let's shift gears slightly and talk about type 1 diabetes specifically. It's the most common in non-Hispanic whites. So two cases per one thousand, and then next in blacks and Hispanics, the incidence between girls and boys is equal, with a peak incidence in early to mid puberty, which is interesting and theorized to be related to the onset of puberty and hormonal influences on insulin and metabolism. Most cases are actually new cases with no family history, which is different from type two diabetes, where there's often a very strong family history. However, if there is a family history of type one diabetes, particularly in a first degree relative, then you are at increased risk for developing type one diabetes. There's genetic associations associated with polymorphisms on the MHC complex as well. Additionally, children with a family history of autoimmune diseases are at higher risk of developing type one diabetes. Children with type one diabetes are also more likely to have autoantibodies and more likely to present in DKA than children with type two diabetes, although that's not a strict rule. 
Okay, so that pretty much sums up type 1 versus type 2 diabetes. We should spend some time talking about how we manage diabetes on our floor at UC Davis. These are just basic guidelines that may help with initial management, but with any patient with diabetes, it is prudent to consult your pediatric endocrinologist. We generally do something similar to the insulin sliding scale in adults. So first we calculate the total daily insulin requirement for the patient. For prepubescent patients, you can estimate this as 0.6 to 0.8 units per kg per day. For postpubescent patients, the requirement is more like 0.8 to 1 units per kg per day. I usually do 1 unit per kg per day for the older children for easier math and the 0.8 for the younger children. So if you have a 40 kilogram adolescent, the total daily insulin requirement is going to be 40 times 1 unit per kg per day, which equals 40 units a day. Half of the total daily insulin should be long-acting insulin like Lantus, so that's your nightly Lantus dose to start, or 20 units for our patient. For the short-acting insulin part, we use a correction factor to correct for fluid sugar levels before meals and bedtime. Initially, the starting dose can be calculated with a formula of 1,500 divided by the total daily dose. So in our 40-kilo adolescent with a 40-unit daily insulin requirement, we would divide 1,500 by 40, which is about 37.5. I would round that to some easy number for calculation, like 40. So that means for every one unit of insulin given to our patient, their blood glucose should, in theory, go down by about 40 points. We generally correct greater than 150 for meals and greater than 200 for bedtime to prevent overnight hypoglycemia. The correction factor, or CF, tells you how many units of insulin to give for a factor of the blood glucose. So our correction factor of 40 for our patient means that you give one unit of insulin for every 40 over 150 for meals or 200 for bedtime. So if our patient's bedtime sugar was 240, we'd give one unit of insulin since it's 40 units above 200. If the sugar was between 240 to 280, we would give two units of insulin and so on. So now we've corrected for the blood glucose before the meals, but we also need to cover the carbohydrates that the patient eats with their meals. So this is the insulin-to-carb ratio. Again, these are rough guidelines, but we generally start with something like 1 unit to 20 grams of carbs for prepubescence, 1 unit to 15 grams of carbs for the pubescence, and 1 unit to 10 grams of carbs for the postpubescent. So our adolescent patient would probably start at 1 to 10. So that's 1 unit for every 10 grams of carbohydrates in the meal. We generally check sugars before meals, bedtime, and also overnight. As you're managing the patient and you start to notice overnight sugars and pre-breakfast sugars are higher, consider increasing that long-acting insulin, like the Lantus. If you notice that the meal or bedtime sugars are higher, consider increasing short-acting insulin dose, either the correction factor or the insulin-to-carbohydrate ratio, or both of them. And keep in mind that this is all just to help you get started if you're by yourself overnight with a diabetes patient. Ultimately, you should be consulting endocrinology for close management. Yeah, and also keep in mind that new diagnosis type 1 diabetes will often have a honeymoon phase where they can be really highly sensitive to insulin in the first few months of treatment. This can make titrating their insulin regimen really tricky in the initial stages, and they're at pretty high risk for developing hypoglycemia. We also don't carb-restrict type 1 diabetes patients like you would normally do for type 2 diabetes. So at UC Davis, we often send insulin, GAD65, islet cell, and zinc transport antibodies which we had talked about before, to help determine whether they have type 1 diabetes. As with all autoimmune diseases, patients with diabetes are at risk for developing other autoimmune conditions. 
For type 1 diabetes, this is true especially for celiac and hypothyroidism. So we usually send those antibodies as well for diagnosis. And lastly, and probably the most important, is to educate patients and families about their new diagnosis. Make sure they know how to carb count and to dose the insulin, how to recognize the signs of hypoglycemia and what to do. Long-term endocrinology will make sure that they know what to do when the patient is exercising or sick and how to titrate the regimen accordingly. They also have to adjust the doses as the patient grows. So to summarize, figuring out type 1 versus type 2 diabetes can be hard, but there are some hints that may help you in determining which one a patient has. Initial inpatient management of both of them is the same regardless, with a sliding insulin scale, antibody testing, and lots and lots of education. Make sure you're familiar with the initial insulin regimen calculations, as this is extremely useful in clinical practice and can prepare you when you consult endocrinology. Feel free to listen to that section in particular, because I know it can be really confusing. That's all for this episode. You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources. Please rate and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at PediagogyPod. That's P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Orlando Magania for podcasting production support and Dr. Su Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vanderlist for supervision. We are supported by funding from the UC Davis Medical Center Department of Pediatrics and the Western Association of Pediatric Program Directors. 